Hello and welcome to our discussion of the future of data flows and the US-EU data privacy framework. We are thrilled to have a terrific live audience today for our discussion, our guest speakers, our keynoter, and our panel. And we're also thrilled to be joined by so many of you online who can participate in the discussion uh, using the chat screen online and uh, make it an interactive discussion as well. And you can also participate online using your favorite uh, platform and the hashtag dataflows. My name is Jason Oxman. I'm the president and CEO of ITI, the Global Trade Association of the Technology Industry. It's my pleasure to be your moderator today uh, for our important discussion. And we are proud at ITI to represent the world's most innovative technology companies. And the discussion today of the important tech policy issues facing the EU and US relationship is vital to the future success of the innovative products and services that ITI member companies launch. So we're pleased to have an opportunity to bring this discussion to you today and hear directly from the decision makers uh, who are at the forefront uh, of the decisions that must be made. Now, as everyone knows, last month, the uh, European Commission released its draft adequacy decision uh, to implement the EU-US data privacy framework. Now, this is uh, taking place under the auspices of the uh, GDPR. Uh, and the framework, uh, which was first outlined by President Biden and uh, Commission uh, President von der Leyen in March of 2022, uh, is designed to replace uh, the Privacy Shield uh, regime uh, that was uh, overturned by the European Court of Justice. This is an enormously important undertaking, uh, not only for the technology industry, but truly for all industries, for all business in Europe and all business in the United States. And the reason for that is uh, data flows between the US and the EU are truly the most important in the world. It represents a 7.1% trillion dollar market and implicates 16 million jobs between the US and the EU. So it is no exaggeration to say this is a vital economic undertaking as well as a policy decision. Now, ITI has led the call for the US and EU decision makers uh, to reach a new data agreement that has been uh, reached and is in the process of being implemented. It is important that this agreement both strengthen the privacy rights of EU citizens and US citizens, but also unlock the true potential of the digital trade relationship between the US and the EU. The new data protection framework is the product of the shared transatlantic values and the commitment to the relationship between the EU and the US. We know already that significant changes have been implemented to US law including, importantly, to respond to the European Court of Justice, uh, far-reaching and binding safeguards on US signals intelligence activities, uh, and also ensuring that all EU citizens have new binding and clear and effective avenues for redress if they feel as if their information has been improperly used. So the framework really reflects the joint ambition of the US and the EU to work together, and we look forward uh, to its swift implementation. Now, to discuss this process, which, as I mentioned, is still underway, the EU is in the process of validating the work that the United States government has made uh, to put new uh, laws and new processes in place. Uh, we have a fantastic panel of speakers uh, with us today that I'm excited to have. Uh, you'll hear in just uh, a few seconds uh, from the European Commissioner for Justice, Didier Reinders. Uh, you'll also hear uh, later uh, from His Excellency uh, Mark Gittenstein, who is the ambassador 
of the United States to the EU. Uh, you'll also hear from the Director General of the Irish Enterprise and Trade Department, um, who is leading the uh, Irish government's response uh, to this measure, uh, and leading industry voices as well, as we discuss the implications of the data privacy framework uh, and the way forward. We'll also, importantly, uh, make this an interactive event by having a Q&A session. So you'll be able to, our live audience members uh, and those of you who are participating online, uh, to ask some questions of our panelists today, which we look forward to. You'll also have the opportunity to respond on to poll questions, uh, which we will present for both our in-person and live uh, and online audiences to uh, uh, address. Uh, you can submit your questions if you're online using the chat function from Slido that's on the right of your screen. Those of you in the audience here today, and it is a packed house uh, here in Brussels, um, can also use the QR code that's at your chair um, to open Slido. Uh, and uh, make sure, please, to uh, offer us your name and uh, affiliation so we can identify you when you ask your questions. And now, without uh, any further ado, I have the great honor and pleasure of introducing our keynote speaker, uh, who is European Commissioner for Justice, uh, Didier Reinders. Uh, our keynote speaker today has the uh, important task of upholding uh, consumer protection and the European rule of law uh, and ensuring that justice uh, and rights and protections of all European citizens are upheld during the vital digital transformation that's taking place here in uh, Europe. Uh, Commissioner Reinders has an impressive background uh, and an impressive political career uh, that includes his role as Belgium's Deputy Prime Minister uh, and also service as uh, Minister of Foreign and European Affairs here in Belgium, Minister of Finance, uh, Minister of Defense uh, across, uh, and your work uh, extended across uh, six of Belgium's government mandates, so uh, certainly an impressive career. But for purposes of our discussion today, Commissioner Reinders also plays a key role in moving forward uh, the US-EU uh, data protection framework that we've been talking about, the EU adequacy decision that's in process, uh, and we are delighted to have you here. It's an honor to have you here to talk to us about uh, your view on the importance of this work uh, and also where we are in the process of moving it forward. So Commissioner Reinders, without any further ado, and our thanks for being here today, I'll turn it over to you. No, thank you and uh, good afternoon. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you today to explain where we are in such a discussion with our US counterparts. And um, of course, you said I was doing 20 years on the other side of the street around the table of the council, doing 40 uh, uh, different presidencies. Uh, but now I'm in the commission. And to be uh, honest, I have started at the beginning of this commission, the mandate of this commission, to discuss with my US colleagues in December uh, 19 about uh, a possible decision of the Court of Justice uh, concerning the privacy shield. And then we have had the uh, the decision and then we have discussed during a, a long while of time and like you said on the 13th of December last year we launched uh, the adoption process for an adequacy uh, decision on the EU-US data privacy uh, framework, the DPF, so the new uh, name for the moment of the privacy shield but it's very clear, uh, a data privacy framework and as you know uh, the proposals follows but also more than that builds on uh, the decisions take on the US side so builds on the adoption of a new executive order by the uh, US president, uh, together with a regulation by the um, Attorney General. And these um, instruments, like you said, implement the agreement in principle that was uh, announced by the two presidents, von der Leyen and President Biden, uh, in March into uh, US law. And so it's very important to see what kind of new instrument it was possible to have in the US law before to start or our process. And there are the results, I said, of uh, 
one, and one year and a half of uh, intense negotiations. I was um, in the leading uh, role on the uh, EU side to discuss with, uh, uh, on the US side, General Mondo, as Trade uh, Secretary, and the Attorney General, Mary Gallen. And we have had intensive discussions uh, in different places, Washington, but also in Europe, about, about that. And uh, to be very concrete, and I have explained that from the beginning to my US colleagues, my mandate, the mandate of the Commission, was the Schwem's true decision of the Court of Justice, because it's a decision of the highest court in Europe, so like the Supreme Court in the US, of course we need to uh, take care of all the requirements uh, of such a, a ruling coming from the uh, European Court of Justice. And this is reflected uh, in the executive order adopted uh, in the uh, US by the US presidents and accompanying Attorney General regulation. Uh, the um, addresses the concern raised by the Court of Justice and brings significant improvement uh, to the privacy shield. I will say that it's totally different, uh, if I may, from the privacy shield. We have tried to build something totally new with the US uh, administration and I'm very proud that it was possible to make such a lot of uh, uh, progress and certainly to put uh, difference uh, in the new uh, text in comparison with the privacy shield, I said, first of all, the executive order creates a new rules that regulate how and under which conditions U.S. intelligence agencies can collect and use personal data transferred from the European Union. Uh, these safeguards are binding on all American intelligence agencies and ensure that any access to data will be limited to what is necessary and proportionate to protect national security. And so we apply the two main principles about the access to the personal data, the necessity and the proportionality, and it explains uh, how it's possible to conceive those rules in the different U.S. texts. And these are also enforceable, like you said, because a European will be able to invoke them to obtain a redress. So it's not just an obligation for the uh, intelligence agency to have full respect, but it's also possible to enforce such a kind of rules with a real access to uh, a review call. This is very different, I said, from what we have seen in the past, because before the Court of Justice, to be very concrete, the main discussion uh, was about the ombudsperson. And in the privacy shield, the ombudsperson, uh, it was established within the U.S. State Department uh, without own real powers. Now we have changed that and now individuals will have the possibility to turn to an independent tribunal free of charge uh, if they consider that their data was unlawfully accessed by US intelligence agencies. And the new mechanism will include an independent data protection review court that will have the power to investigate such complaints and issue Binding decisions, of course, was very important to us to be sure that at the end of the process there is a real decision uh, with a, a binding character for all the different uh, actors. These are all significant improvements which uh, uh, allow us, as detailed in the draft adequacy decisions, to conclude that the new framework meets the court's requirement because in the requirement of the court it was possible that the power of such a new court includes the power to order remedies, uh, such as, for example, the deletion of data uh, that was unlawfully collected. And so 
you have different elements to show that we are far from the previous situation. Importantly, um, the safeguard that we have put into place will apply to all transatlantic data transfers, not only those based on the future adequacy decisions. So also if you use other kinds of uh, instruments to organize data transfer, it will be possible. And that means that such uh, uh, use of um, such uh, standards, contractual clauses, or binding corporate rules uh, will benefit from all the safeguards that we have put in the new system. This should significantly increase, of course, legal certainty and stability for AU-US data transfers. And this leads, leads me to uh, maybe the last point that I would like to, to make uh, in this introduction of your debate, which are the next steps, because it's a long journey. I said my first discussion was in 19 December uh, to discuss about a possible uh, decision of the court, and then we have taken into account the decision, and then we have started with the new administration uh, a long uh, negotiation process. But all draft decision has been transmitted in December on our side to the European Data Protection Board for its opinion, which we expect to receive by the end of next month, by the end of February. Um, after that, we will need to obtain a positive vote from member states, so we will go to the so-called here in Brussels comitology, so to discuss with all the, the member states and to have a positive reaction. And of course, um, a draft adequacy decision is subject to the scrutiny of the European Parliament during the whole process. Once this procedure will be completed, the Commission College will be um, able to adopt the final adequacy uh, decision. And as you can imagine, it is difficult to give a precise timeline, but we have a certain experience because uh, in the last uh, two years, we have taken some decisions about uh, South Korea with an adequacy decision, but also due to the Brexit, it was needed to discuss about two adequacy decisions with UK. And when you look to uh, the process for those adequacy decisions, it was needed to uh, proceed during around six months. So to be very prudent, I will say that it's possible to conclude before the summer. Uh, you know that for the Commission, the summer starts in August. <laughs> we work till the end of July, so we will see if it's possible to conclude before such a kind of summer. No, but we are on a good process, and uh, uh, the timing uh, will also depend, of course, on the implementation of the data privacy framework on the other side of the uh, Atlantic, because we have a lot of things to do, I said, before to go to a final decision of the Commission, but uh, the draft adequacy decision clearly states that it will only enter into effect once the new legal framework uh, is fully in place on the US side. And so there's also a clear message I heard from the Open Data Protection Board a few days ago when I joined their plenary meeting. I've explained to the data protection authorities in Europe and the board uh, our new uh, system. And of course, it was very clear that we need to have a full implementation on the US side of the actual executive order and uh, implementing act from the Attorney General before to go to the, the end of the process. As required under the executive order, the US intelligence agencies will have to uh, operationalize the new safeguards by reviewing their national policies and, and rules. So it's important to see the evolution in the intelligence community on the US side to comply with the new system. And similarly, the US uh, has to designate 
the European Union and maybe more the European economic area, so with Norway, uh, Iceland and, and Liechtenstein, as an organization that can uh, benefit from the redress mechanism. Uh, it's uh, uh, a clear decision of the Attorney General to designate states or organization in all situations. It's an organization because we organize the process for the entire uh, Euro European economic area. Without that, Europeans will not benefit from the uh, redress rights we have negotiated. And thus, a key requirement of the court's case law will not be fulfilled. And before um, concluding, let me come back to the significance of this uh, transatlantic con uh, cooperation. Uh, it was a long process, it was a long journey, and we are not at the end, but uh, it was very important to, uh, uh, to, to go to a final agreement to show that it's possible to find a way for such a kind of agreement. The intense discussions with our U.S. counterparts have allowed to reach a common understanding and solve difficult issues that involve a delicate balancing between privacy rights and national security needs. And I know that the national security policy is a real one important policy uh, in the U.S. It's become to be, uh, decades after decade, more and more an important policy issue also in Europe. Uh, but it was needed to, to, to understand better the situation. And this once again showed that even on some of the more sensitive issues, the European Union and the United States can work together towards positive solutions and to the benefits of both citizens and the economy. You have mentioned the figures above the economy. It's not only a protection of citizen rights, it's also a possible development for the economy, and it's also a possible normal use of some uh, uh, investigative uh, measures for the in intelligence agency, because we are not against, of course, a real uh, national security policy. It is certainly a promising precedent to address other challenges of the digital economy involving equally complex issues. I will say that you know that we are working uh, since some times on different new legislation at the EU level, the uh, DSA, Digital Services Act, or the DMA for the markets, but also I'm working more on uh, AI and certainly also the civil liability uh, dedicated to uh, AI. But we, we, are, we have seen that it's possible to move um, in some uh, uh, situation in the same direction, not maybe with the same kind of regulation, but the same kind of concerns. And I'm sure that here we have a good example of what is possible to do if we want to continue to work. Maybe one day we'll uh, compare all GDPR with the privacy law at the federal level in the US. We will see. That That's maybe great. a possible evolution. <laughs> but uh, again, for the moment, I'm very proud that it was possible to uh, uh, have such a kind of negotiation and to conclude such a kind of agreement. Now we have a lot of things to do in the next month, I said, on both sides, to conclude maybe uh, before the summer. Thank you. And uh, Europe has been a leader on privacy legislation. The U.S. can learn a lot by watching <laughs> Europe, and uh, it is our strong hope that we could get a federal privacy law in the U.S. as well. Uh, thank you for walking through the importance of this and the, the work that's gone into it. I just want to ask uh, one quick question uh, before we let you go, and that is you mentioned you're hearing uh, good feedback uh, from the member states uh, as this works its way through the process, uh, but of course it has to go through Parliament, through the, through the, uh, the member state process through the adequacy review process, through the European Data Protection Board. Uh, just as a, a general matter, uh, are you sensing optimism among all the bodies that are reviewing it that this work can get done and that the uh, importance uh, of concluding this agreement and putting it into force is, is well understood? 
I said I've had um, a first official uh, discussion with the DPB uh, to present the, the new framework. I've had, of course, many informal contacts with right. members of the parliament or members of uh, the, the different government in Europe. Uh, I will go next week to the Libe Committee so, uh, in the European Parliament. But the first reaction is at least the recognition that there is a real change. It's not just an amendment to the privacy shield. It's something new. That is very clear. The second element that I've discussed uh, already, uh, certainly with DDPB, is that uh, it's important to explain the situation in the US. To give an example, uh, we have in the US an independent body in charge of the oversight of the intelligence community. But it's not now in, in Europe. It's not evident to, to explain that. So I've said, why not to invite, uh, maybe uh, to, to see the the DPAs or to see the member states, uh, the people in charge of that in the so-called P-Club, so the Privacy Civil Liberty uh, Body, yes, if, I, if I'm correct, uh, to, to see how it's possible to organize a real oversight on the intelligence uh, community. And in the executive order and the implementing act, we are going further with new competence for such a, an independent body, also in the way to install uh, the, review, the review court, so to give a real independence to the review court. So that's the second element we need to explain better. And third, of course, um, there's a, a real understanding that we have uh, like-minded partners. And you know that also in the OECD, we are in discussions now to try to have a framework about the access of intelligence services to personal data. Of course, not exactly with the same regulation again, but the same concerns. And it's very important that uh, uh, we have the possibility to explain that with the like-minded partners, it must be possible to find an agreement. So we will see. Of course, uh, we will have to defend our uh, agreement to go to an adequacy decision with the data protection authorities, with uh, uh, the parliament, with the member states. But I'm quite confident that at least it's possible to explain again that it's totally different from the privacy shield and we have enhanced the level of uh, the rules, the safeguards for the access of intelligence agencies to the personal data and for the uh, direct access to a redress for the individuals coming from Europe. It is fully responsive to all of the concerns raised by the European Court of Justice. And as you noted, uh, it is a brand new regime. It is in force in law in the United States. Uh, and uh, the work here uh, will proceed apace, and uh, we are grateful for your efforts and those of your colleagues in, uh, in making this a reality. Uh, and I'll ask everyone in the audience to join me in thanking Commissioner Didier Rangers for his time today. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. So uh, we'll have an opportunity to hear reaction from uh, the uh, individual uh, member state, uh, the commission, and uh, industry representatives in just a moment. Uh, and as we prepare to do that, uh, we want to ask for the thoughts of our audience on all of the work that, have happened, uh, that is happening and will continue to happen here. Um, so we're going to take a look at a poll, uh, our first poll question of the day that comes up online. Uh, and you can see it there on your screen, a reminder that you can participate in that poll uh, online and in the room. Uh, the poll is a question about uh, um, uh, your opinion about what the greatest benefit of the data privacy framework is. So as a refresher, our in-person audience, connect to Slido with the QR code. Uh, if you're online, please answer in the Slido chat to the right of your screen. So poll question number one, in your opinion, what is the greatest benefit of the data privacy framework? Is it A, ensuring legal certainty 
Uh, B, safeguarding fundamental rights. C, seamless data transfers. Or D, increased trust in the digital economy. So you will have an opportunity to answer uh, that uh, right now in the poll, and we will bring the results to you uh, as they come in. Uh, and we will also get ready for our, uh, our new uh, panel that will be joining us in just a moment uh, as you take a second to look there. Um, a reminder that our panel will be responding to uh, the remarks of uh, Commissioner Reinders, and you have the opportunity to do so as well. Questions are welcome from the live audience and also online. So we uh, have the poll results coming in um, from our online and in-person audience. And we'll take a look at those results right now uh, on the screen. And we have a clear, uh, well, pretty clear winner um, that's seamless data transfers, uh, reflecting the importance of uh, the EU-US transatlantic data uh, flows to all industries, not just the tech industry. And seamless data transfers seem to be the winner with 43% uh, of the results. Uh, but we have safeguarding fundamental rights uh, coming in second place uh, with 33% of the poll, um, capturing quite effectively the uh, remarks of uh, Commissioner Reinders uh, and his view that this is uh, important not only for industry, but also for fundamental rights protection as well. And now we get to continue our conversation uh, by welcoming uh, both policymakers and industry experts uh, here to the stage to share uh, their insights on cross-border data flows and what we can expect um, from the data protection framework uh, once implemented here uh, in the EU. Let me uh, start off by uh, introducing our, our panel uh, to you. I'll start on my immediate left uh, with uh, Ronnie Downs who is the Director General for Ireland's, Ireland's Department of Enterprise, Trade, and Employment's Trade Division, where he works uh, to promote healthy trade and business relationships between Ireland and the rest of the world. Ronnie has also been the Director General of Ireland's Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, the OECD's Deputy Head for, of Division for Budgeting and Public Expenditures, and the Assistant Data Protection Commissioner for Data Protection Commission Ireland, a very active uh, DPC, uh, I think is uh, safe to say. Uh, a warm uh, welcome to you, Ronnie, and uh, welcome. Uh, let me uh, then move on to uh, introduce, uh, seated next to uh, Ronnie, is uh, Nana Louise Lind, who is Microsoft's Vice President of European Government Affairs. Nana Louise, welcome. Uh, in that role, she's responsible for the company's uh, government affairs and public policy work in Europe and strengthening the external relations uh, between EU institutions and member states. Uh, over two decades of experience at Microsoft, so uh, well-versed in the company's perspectives uh, and helping uh, the company be a trusted and constructive partner uh, to the EU institutions and their ambition to drive forward the European digital economy. Welcome, Nana Louise. Uh, let me next uh, introduce on our panel uh, Martinez Barisas. Did I get that close to right? Perfect. Excellent. Director of Inter Internal Market and Digital Policy at Business Europe, uh, a great partner of ITIs. Uh, Martinez is the director in charge of the digital economy and single market governance at Business Europe, which of course is the confederation of European enterprise representing both uh, national trade associations and individual companies uh, from across the EU uh, member states. Uh, Martinez worked in the European Parliament uh, and uh, the Council in his former role as internal market attache at the Lithuanian permanent representative to the EU. So Martinez, welcome. And uh, last but not least, let me please uh, welcome Ralph uh, Sawyer, who is deputy head of unit international data flows and protection in the European Commission's DG Just. 
Ralph Welcome. Uh, Ralph, uh, in that role, uh, works on uh, commercial and legal data flows, uh, regulating digital trade agreements like the EU-US data privacy framework. Uh, and he's been a key negotiator as uh, this solution to the European Court of Justice uh, case, Schrems II, uh, has moved its way forward. Uh, and uh, we're very grateful to him and his colleagues for their hard work uh, in uh, bringing this uh, to the fore. So, uh, Ronnie, I want to start uh, our discussion uh, with you because, of course, as we talked about with uh, Commissioner Reinders, uh, each individual member state has a role to play uh, here in uh, approving the draft adequacy uh, proposal now that the EU and the U.S. Uh, has uh, made their decision. Uh, there is much more work to do. Uh, and I wanted to ask you for the Irish perspective on uh, not only the importance of this uh, this decision and the new framework uh, that's been uh, created, uh, but also uh, the questions that uh, you're asking about uh, about this as we move forward to approval. Sure. Well, thanks, uh, Jason. It's good to be here this afternoon. Um, I'm from the Business and Trade Ministry, so I'll start from a trade perspective before getting uh, directly to some of those questions. I mean, Ireland, uh, like we're one of the voices, we're one of the member states uh, that, that has a voice on this, but we're a small, open trading uh, economy and uh, we've benefited enormously from an open approach to, to trade, to international trade, uh, over the years, over the decades uh, indeed. Trade volumes have tripled uh, in, in the past decade for our country, and that's really helped underpin you know, prosperity and well-being uh, in the country, and we want to see that continue. And a growing proportion of the, those trade volumes um, in Ireland, but also around Europe and around the world, our, our digital, digital trade is becoming more and more important. Um, we also were conscious that about half of the jobs we have in our country are linked directly or indirectly to, to that, that openness to trade. So it's something that, uh, that we, hold, we hold dear. And in parallel, we're also ranked quite highly as an advanced um, digital economy. You're using the European Union's uh, digital economy and uh, society index. And I think uh, the two go hand in hand, in my view. The world is becoming increasingly interconnected. We're doing more and more... Uh, business, more business and trade uh, activity is underpinned by digitization uh, and the movement of data across borders. And if we want to see that growth continue and the, and the, you know, the good things and the prosperity that come with that, we need to facilitate that uh, in, a, in a principled way. And of course, you know, finally on this point, we're conscious in Ireland that digital trade, trade in general brings huge benefits, not just the benefits of, for consumers and access to goods, you know, from from the online platforms, but higher efficiencies, streamlined global value chains, allowing businesses large and small to access global markets. So all of these are good things. And it's against that background that we assess uh, where we are and where we're going with the European framework. Again, on the trade side, before I move to the specific um, data privacy aspects, uh, we're big supporters in Ireland of all the work that the European uh, commission is doing to promote free trade agreements, which increasingly have uh, digital aspects and digital provisions to them. It's a very exciting time for international trade. There's a lot of uh, work going on around the world, a lot of uh, work going on in the Indo-Pacific region to forge new ways of doing business digitally, and we want to make sure that uh, Europe, the EU, is, is at those discussions, is contributing, is helping to influence, helping to shape the new uh, the new rules-based order for how we can how we can do business uh, together, um, and of course there's a lot of aspects to digital trade. But the one uh, one of the pillars of that is making sure that uh, we can move forward 
on digital trade in a way that commands the confidence of citizens and businesses and all of the, the stakeholders. Uh, we need to make sure that we can move forward in a way that uh, people can, you know, can feel safe uh, you know, when they're interacting on online platforms. They're not worrying about what's happening on privacy. They take it for granted that their, uh, their, their rights are being protected uh, in, in, in the way that we have set these, these things up. Uh, you mentioned in your little um, resume for me that in an earlier life, it's actually going back a long time now, I was in our data protection our data protection office. Uh, it's, it's a long time ago. I was in charge, in fact, of the Y2K transition at that stage, so it's, uh, and I'm pleased to say it went very well at the time. But uh, since then, a lot has changed in the, in the data privacy world and the data protection world. And um, so, uh, so I'm, really, I, I'm old enough to remember you know, some of the earlier attempts. We mentioned the, the privacy shield. Before that, there was the safe harbor uh, agreement, and they, you know, they didn't prove to be up to what, uh, uh, what was what was required. So we're very hopeful that with the new agreement that's in place now uh, and with all the, the hard work, there's been sincere efforts, good faith engagement between Europe and the US to get things right. Uh, we're hopeful that that will uh, pass muster and that uh, that will um, uh, enable digital trade to continue and to flourish uh, between us uh, into the future. Uh, I think, um, let's say we're, we're cautiously optimistic We'll hear what other colleagues uh, have to say, but uh, I think there's been a lot of really good hard work to be done. The, the gains, if we get this right, for uh, people in, in Europe and America are huge, so we're, we're anxious to get, uh, to get progress on this and to come up with a, a lasting, sustainable uh, agreement that people can, can have confidence in and that can command the confidence of businesses and citizens. Terrific. Well, we look forward to uh, working forward on that. And uh, you're absolutely right. This is vitally important to, to industry and to citizens and to governments to get this right. And uh, Nana Louise, I wanted to ask you for Microsoft's perspective on this as a globally operating company. Um, you know, the, I mentioned uh, in my opening remarks the vital importance of the U.S.-EU relationship in general shared values, democratic values, uh, a shared business relationship. Um, it's also borne out in the numbers, $7.1 trillion in, uh, in uh, trade uh, between the US and the EU that's implicated by this, uh, this privacy shield replacement regime. Um, how important do you think and does Microsoft think uh, that success uh, in this data privacy framework uh, is for the transatlantic relationship and what does it mean about the uh, importance of the US-EU relationship that we're making such good progress here? Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is uh, like crucial for all our customers that they can rely on, on, on this agreement. Um, I think it's also a recognition by the U.S. of the importance of the concern, the, the privacy concern of the EU, uh, that there's a recognition there that this is a real concern. Um, and uh, as you said yourself, you know, um, demonstrates the willingness to preserve some of the joint values that we share. Um, I think one, uh, one area that we have not talked so much about is that it's also very important for our security. Uh, uh, that we can have, you know, data flow. Um, uh, it's important for EU-NATO collaboration, and therefore we're also very happy about this new declaration um, that NATO and EU will work together on digital issues. I think moving forward, this um, uh, hints also to the need for even more uh, close transatlantic collaboration. I think we saw 
in, uh, in Ukraine, how important it is when we work together and what we can achieve, uh, that we really need each other to tackle some of the bigger issues in, in the world. And um, um, we, we maybe last thing to mention, uh, we heard that uh, there will be a relaunch of the negotiation also for uh, an agreement on lawful access to cloud, cloud stored data. This is something that we think is very important as well. Martinez, we've talked about the technology industry perspective and uh, Nana Luis has shared uh, Microsoft's perspective from the technology industry and obviously ITI is a tech trade association so we're very focused on that. Business Europe, where you come from, is a much broader uh, association in that you represent European businesses uh, from across quite literally every industry segment. Um, uh, can you share with us your perspective from Business Europe on why this is not just a tech industry issue? It sounds like a tech industry issue, the flow of data, uh, but it's really much broader than that and has much wider economic implications for European businesses. Uh, would welcome your perspective on that. Thank you, Jason. And you said half of it already. Uh, indeed, it is about businesses at large. And I represent Business Europe that represents companies of all sizes, all sectors, and covers basically all Europe. We are the association of 40 member federations from 35 countries uh, that cover the map of Europe. And uh, it was really the call of our members, and a very strong one, that, hey, we need a stable framework for international data flows for the US. And the US and EU data flows for our companies, they uh, bring uh, a lot of opportunities. Of course, a lot of efficiencies. Uh, and also that affects, I would say, even every enterprise that has something to do with the United States trading partners. We can take, you know, whatever example, we can take the renewable energy sources, for example, how solar energy is used in smart houses and, and what the follow-up services are related to that. We can, we can take an example of medical tests, how they are run and, and the data processed and so on. I mean, really, it also concerns uh, SMEs, which is also uh, very important, who use uh, a lot of um, uh, relationships uh, with the US uh, partners. So that really affects businesses at large. That really affects more than the tech sector alone. And that is why we are quite outspoken about the necessity of a stable framework for the, uh, the data flows um, uh, across the Atlantic. Um, we also say that uh, uh, we need a very strong balance in what we do in Europe with what we do with our trusted trade partners. And that's important, trusted trade partners. And of course, we consider US being one of those. So in Europe, within Europe, we speak about the data flows uh, as important as we need the fifth freedom of movement within the single market. <laughs> At the same time, we say we need also the freedom of movement of data with our trusted trading partners like the US. So this is really very important for our members. Um, what else? Of course, we never leave the trust uh, angle unattended. So trust in data economy, of course, starts with the trust of consumer but, uh, um, in, in, in what is happening uh, with his or her data. So, of course, we need a framework on which the commission now is following up uh, after, after the executive order uh, of our Biden administration. So we do support the process, but of course we need also a result. And the result for us, it's about the stable legal framework that businesses can trust in. Standard contractual clauses were mentioned today, uh, they are not sufficient. 
to do business across the Atlantic. And the broader context that we always put all this debate into is that about the three pillars values, values of the Western democracies, economic resilience. Europe likes speaking about resilience these days. We think the international data flows with trusted trading partners is also about economic resilience on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and uh, uh, that, is, that is why we, we are so uh, you know, confident in speaking up in support of the future framework, which we'll hope will be st stable. And which we hope as well. And Rolf is here to tell us about how this is going to come to fruition. So Commissioner uh, Reinders talked in great detail about, uh, I, I think, a very important point, which this is not a, uh, an update to Privacy Shield. This is a complete replacement. This is a brand new regime. This is a new law in the United States that establishes a new administrative law court. Uh, establishes processes and procedures for EU citizens to be able to seek redress where they wouldn't have otherwise been able to in US courts. Uh, it establishes rules for the US intelligence community on what it can and cannot do in using that data. So a completely new regime. Uh, so Ralph, I wanted to ask you uh, to help us understand how the adequacy review process plays out here. Um, for reviewing this new uh, system that's been established. Uh, we know certainly that the EU and the US in principle have agreed to this uh, because President Biden and uh, President von der Leyen announced it jointly. Um, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done to finalize the process. And you're here to help us understand how that uh, works from here. Uh, I, I'll ask you to um, confirm or deny the prediction of July uh, or August that uh, Commissioner Reinders made, but more importantly, uh, to help us understand what happens from here and how the adequacy review process works. <clears throat> so, um, well, first of all, thank, thanks for inviting me. Um, maybe it's, it's good to start, first of all, with briefly at least explaining what adequacy is, because sometimes there's a misunderstanding, perhaps, uh, about that. Uh, uh, because sometimes we hear international agreement and things like this. So it is ultimately a uh, decision uh, by the European Commission, my institution, um, that uh, is declaratory in the sense it's a finding that a third country ensures uh, a level of protection uh, that, uh, as the Court of Justice has interpreted, is essentially equivalent in level of protection to, to the one guaranteed in the European Union. Um, uh, the reason for that being that it's the most comprehensive transfer tool that we have. It allows the free flow of data um, between the European Union and the third country. Um, uh, our rules require always that there are certain safeguards in place uh, for such transfers. We facilitate them, but we also um, seek to ensure that there's a certain continuity of protection. An adequacy finding can, can achieve this by, by establishing that a third country is very similar in the, in the projections to ours and therefore we can in a way uh, treat data transfers as if they would, uh, to the third country as if they would happen within the European Union. So that, that's the idea. Um, that's why the standard is also relatively high. We have other transfer tools which, which, are, which are less demanding in a way. Um, the Court of Justice has interpreted this as essential equivalence and, and uh, the European Data Protection Board has established criteria what that means, uh, so core elements that we need to find. Uh, originally this was focused on the commercial side, so to speak, so, so what are the safeguards insured by companies? Uh, that's, that's actually the, should be the core of, of, of such an assessment because that's where the data goes to. But then, uh, uh, and that, that was the novelty in the first Schrems uh, judgment and then it was further clarified in the second. 
uh, we learned uh, in a way from that process that, well, we also have to look at uh, to what extent can companies actually do that uh, and to what extent could there be interference, and I'm not meaning this in a negative sense, but, but there could be, uh, uh, for example, access by public authorities uh, that, that uh, would prevent companies from, from protecting the data because they would, for instance, have to give it uh, to, to the government for legitimate purposes. But, but our task, uh, as the court said, is then also to check that element. So, so the continuity of protection goes a bit further than just to the initial recipient, which is the company. So that's how we got to, 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 to uh, having to look at all this. We're not the only ones, I think, that are concerned about government access. Uh, I think that's uh, a more and more a global concern. Um, you know things like the concept of data free flow with trusts. I think uh, it's, it's more and more also about uh, looking at um, uh, yeah, what are the rules, limitations, and safeguards for government access. That's why we had the OECD process on, on uh, principles for government access to data, also from the same angle of how to ensure trust. So, so that's, that's why uh, we have, and, and following Schrems too, we had to focus on this particular area, uh, and, and that's where the U.S. Uh, law that has been created, the executive order and the uh, attorney general come into play. Um, we have on that basis already drafted a decision, so now I come to, to the process, uh, if you wish. Um, we have already a, a draft decision which, which builds on, uh, on the commercial side very much on what was already there, because there is a lot of continuity when it comes to the rules for companies. Um, but then, as you say, we have a brand new sort of regime to look at uh, when it comes to government access. Uh, we have done that. Uh, the next step is then always that uh, we go with that draft decision to the data protection authorities that's, that's foreseen in our uh, rules in the GDPR for an opinion, um, uh, which, is, which is very important, that opinion. It's not binding, but it's, of course, very important. It's very important input uh, for us and, 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 and also for other stakeholders because the next step then is going to the member states. Uh, we have a certain procedure where we discuss with member state experts uh, the draft decision uh, in the light of the opinion. So that process really only starts once the opinion uh, from the data protection authorities is there. Um, and then we need at the end the green light from the member states. Um, so they have to vote at some point uh, on, on the draft decision. Um, we don't need unanimity, but we aim for unanimity. We want that, that all the member states support this and that we have convinced them. Um, uh, and, and that might require that we do some further explanations, uh, uh, react to certain points that maybe the European Data Protection Board has raised um, uh, to, to create that level of assurance and confidence on the side of the member states to, to, to vote positively, which we, of course, hope. Um, and then uh, uh, we, we can proceed to adoption by the College of the Commission. Um, the Commissioner also mentioned, of course, the right of the Parliament to, to exercise its scrutiny. So, and as the Commissioner said, and I will, of course, would never uh, in any event uh, contradict him, but, but uh, he's, he's also simply right. Uh, it's, it's a process where you cannot really uh, say with certainty how long it takes. There are several uh, institutional actors here. Um, we are only one of them. Um, uh, judging from experience, including uh, the Privacy Shield, we usually count that, uh, I mean, it takes at least six months from uh, sending the draft decision to the European Data Protection Board to adoption. Um, and then, of course, there are more sensitive uh, uh, decisions, draft decisions than others. So, so this is one where certainly stakeholders will look at very closely. So uh, that could mean that we need a bit more time, for instance, with the member states, more meetings um, in which we uh, discuss these things. 
but yeah, uh, I, I would uh, hope uh, and expect that we, um, that we can adopt this by July, uh, June, July. Um, I think that's, that's what we all aim for. Um, and not just because we want to go on holidays uh, in, in, in <laughs> August, um, but that's that's usually um, that what helps. it takes. It helps. And plus, we are convinced of what we what we have proposed. So, so um, um, it has been said now many times that this is very different. Um, uh, it's it's also in many ways unique. Um, it's also unique that we have discussed this uh, at this level of detail with a foreign government, or rather the other way around, that a foreign government was ready to discuss this with us. So I think, um, I hope this is, will be recognized, um, will be recognized by our data protection authorities. And I must say the first meetings have been rather positive in the sense that, that um, one can feel that, that uh, they, they see not just the effort, but also that there's an outcome. Um, and so we hope that this will continue the same with the parliament. Um, there will be meetings with parliament, of course, also to debrief them uh, at commissioner level, at technical level. So there's a whole of, lot of work, uh, that's also what the Commissioner said, um, uh, of, of, of course explaining. It's, it's a long technical decision uh, with many details uh, and, and they need to be explained. Um, and that's not, not always easy, but um, yeah, yeah, we're quite confident. And then what comes after we will see, um, uh, I wanna, don't want to spoil it, but I mean, there, there are some stakeholders uh, have announced that they, they might challenge it. That's of course always a possibility. Uh, and we should not be worried about this. Um, we, uh, there's no problem with the Schrems III uh, judgment if it's a positive uh, judgment, and, and, that's, right. and that's what we aim that's right. for. And of course, uh, Mr. Schrems announced that he was going to sue before the uh, framework had even been put in place. So uh, uh, he uh, obviously didn't care about what the actual facts were um, before he made that announcement, the famous lipstick on a pig quote. Um, we didn't yet know what the, uh, what the pig looked like. Um, Thank you for that. It's very helpful, and uh, of course, your optimism about uh, the timeline is uh, is uh, refreshing to hear, and uh, we will hope on that. Uh, of course, uh, Ronnie, I want to come back to you uh, to drill down on that last step that Rolf talked about, which was the member states, uh, and ask uh, either from the Irish perspective or what you're hearing from your counterparts and other uh, EU member states about what they're looking for, what questions they might have, uh, and how you see the process of the member state component of this uh, playing out uh, along the timelines that we've been talking about. Well, <clears throat> well sure, uh, Jason. Obviously, I can't, um, <clears throat> I can't look into the crystal ball too much about what other independent member states uh, will do. But uh, my sense is that um, there's a certain commonality of position among, across a lot of member states that there's, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's goodwill. We all want to see uh, we want to see an agreement that's durable, that's sustainable, that's grounded in the, the values that, uh, that we both share and that uh, citizens uh, on, on both sides of the Atlantic can, you know, can, can repose some trust and confidence in. Uh, we respect, uh, obviously, in Ireland and I think in other member states too, there's a lot of value placed on the principles that underlie the, the data protection and data privacy rules and we want to see those, uh, those respected uh, and upheld. And uh, obviously the Schrems II judgment, uh, as we've just heard, pointed to certain areas that needed more attention. And there has been, uh, certainly from uh, all that we have seen, there has been uh, a good faith, uh, intensive engagement on addressing those uh, to, uh, you know, to, to hopefully get us where we, where we need to get to. I think we're going to have to hear, we're going to have to 
see exactly what it is that the, uh, the Commission comes back to us with. We're going to have to talk to our colleagues uh, and our peers uh, about uh, whether we have indeed, uh, as we hope, reached a position that squares away and balances uh, all of these uh, all of these issues, and we'll uh, we'll make uh, we'll make a judgment uh, in due course. You know what way we want things to go, but we'll we'll um, we'll, we'll handle this uh, we'll handle this straight, and uh, we'll handle it in, in in concert with our with our colleagues. Um, and I will just make the point, if I may, that uh, you know those. EU citizens who have exercised their right to take legal challenges against uh, the, the provisions and the measures uh, that have been in place up to now. You know, one could have different views from a, from a business or from a, a data privacy uh, perspective, but um, one could argue that um, those citizens are perhaps doing us all a favour by getting us, accelerating us along the path to where we need to be, which is a stable, sustainable, durable uh, framework which can, uh, you know, withstand uh, the tests and can pass the tests that it needs to that it needs to pass, to so that we can all uh, reap the benefits of uh, trade and digital trade and data flows into the future. And uh, Nana Louise, I want to ask you to be our uh, our, our voice of uh, I don't want to say voice of doom, but voice of reality. <laughs> um, uh, and I'll ask you in just a second to address what happens if this doesn't move forward and we don't get this replacement. Uh, but a reminder to our audience that you have the opportunity to engage uh, directly with our panelists uh, by entering your question uh, into the chat uh, on the right of your screen if you're online or if here in the room. Um, please take advantage of the uh, QR code that will link you to Slido and allow you to ask a question of our panelists as well. We have some great questions coming in that I hope to have the opportunity to get to. Uh, but Nana Louise, uh, Microsoft has really done a terrific job uh, since the uh, Schrems II decision was issued uh, in helping us all understand what the implications for business are uh, if this uh, replacement uh, regime is not uh, put in place. Uh, there was the idea initially that standard contractual clauses would save us all, um, and that worked for a period of time. Uh, but I wonder if you can help us uh, understand at a, at a layman's level um, what uh, is at risk, really, uh, for businesses uh, here in Europe in particular um, if this uh, regime is not put in place in a timely manner? I think legal uncertainty is never a good thing. Uh, and we saw that also on the poll. There was a concern from, from many people. Um, when, when we had the decision from the court, it left more than 5,000 companies in a situation where they relied on that privacy shield for their um, EU data transfer, uh, data transfers and had to scramble to find other solutions. And we know from our customers that they did also pause projects other places in the world, not only uh, in the EU. Um, and yes, we, we, we tried many different uh, ways to, to help our customers and allow data flows anyway. Uh, we followed the guidance also of the, of, of, of the uh, Data Protection Board. But um, yeah, we are like so grateful for the work that has been done to, to, to land this agreement. Um, we hope it will restore trust and legal certainty, provide legal certainty to businesses, um, I think there's also the, the security aspect that I mentioned earlier that is uh, very much dependent on this uh, going in the right direction. And uh, I think it's true, it will be challenged, but uh, we, we are also confident it will stand the test, so at least we, we hope so. But 
just wanted to say thank you again uh, for the tremendous work that has been going on. It's, uh, it's very, very, very uh, helpful. <laughs> and very important as well. Yes. Um, so I would echo that as well. Uh, Martinez, you're, you're watching, obviously, uh, this, and I want to get your perspective on uh, uh, the Business Europe reaction to the uh, decision, the adequacy decision that's going to be uh, moving forward and uh, the solution that's been developed. Uh, but I also wanted to ask you uh, for your thoughts on uh, other data-related matters that are uh, under discussion here in the EU, uh, the Data Act in particular, and the uh, potential impact on the use of non-personal data there. So as we move uh, this piece uh, forward, uh, please offer your thoughts uh, on, on the, the solution that's been developed and uh, Business Europe's reaction there, but also what else should we be watching as far as uh, data regulatory issues uh, in the Data Act and, and elsewhere? Thanks a lot you caught me on this <laughs> now, because that's really a much broader topic and a crucial one, because this is about where geopolitically even Europe places itself with the data economy. So thanks for the question, I'll come to that broader one, but let's start maybe first with the draft adequacy decision. We are looking into it, uh, well, three points maybe. Uh, and I would like first to start what the commissioner mentioned, that we do have to acknowledge the step that the U.S. administration made. I mean, this is not insignificant, uh, what, what we see, and uh, especially in the given context. Uh, so we have to acknowledge uh, what, what uh, the Biden administration uh, made as a step towards Europe, towards European approach uh, in terms of privacy. Uh, because at first glimpse, you know, it might sound a bit technical, you know, it's about the personal data flows, I mean, they, they did something and so on. Uh, it's far from technical. Uh, so that must be acknowledged as the first thing. The second thing, uh, we of course would like to commend what the Commission uh, has been doing uh, with all the patience that it requires and uh, uh, with all the necessary engagement uh, with the partners uh, uh, across the seas. Uh, what we see as an important thing is that the Commission makes the validity of, of this adequacy uh, uh, agreement uh, uh, conditional upon implementation. So. Uh, there will be a close uh, monitoring in terms of how actually the uh, executive order is implemented in the U.S. So that is an important thing. Uh, and that, of course, uh, as we see it, uh, brings about uh, more trust. Um, so we very much hope, uh, once again, and my third point, I come back to, to the same uh, message. We very much hope that the pillars of economic welfare, economic resilience, then stability of the legal framework, and the Western values will be upheld, and we very much hope that this time uh, we will have a really stable framework uh, um, that will be that will be approved. We really do not need Harry Potter, you know, in these sensitive issues uh, to go on and on. Uh, uh, we don't need a Harry Potter series. Um, so that's about the uh, the, the adequacy uh, decision draft. Now, in terms of the data column at large, and by the way, you mentioned Data Act, but it's also about the Artificial Intelligence Act, also about some cyber issues. It's a much broader topic, which is really very crucial uh, uh, these days uh, uh, for Business Europe membership. With the Data Act, uh, uh, shall I put it this way, we understand the objectives, we understand the uh, willingness to, to, to give a boost to the data economy, but we do have many more questions than answers for today. And um, there are some interesting provisions that uh, the business community is not quite uh, happy about. And that also uh, relates to the uh, data transfers of non-personal data. 
because there are some provisions as we interpret those that if there are no international agreements that uh, the businesses should take all the possible measures uh, um, uh, to prevent data transfers uh, across the seas uh, or to prevent uh, access to, to such data. Uh, for us, uh, it's, it's a real challenge to understand how the public sector transfers basically uh, its function onto the private uh, operator's shoulders to assess the third country laws. You know, whether they are uh, uh, against or, or, or in line with the EU or member state legislation. I mean, sorry, this is a matter for, 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 the, for the public authorities. And how can you imagine a company being uh, capable uh, of uh, assessing these kind of things? Uh, and I'm also uh, having in mind the SMEs, uh, for example. So for us, this is the, a real challenge. What to do when there is no international agreement? Again, then we are in a limbo. Um, uh, so that is about the Data Act. More questions than answers, unfortunately. Uh, we see that it is very difficult to improve the present draft. I will be very honest with you. Well, we are trying to be constructive and to engage in, in, in the dialogue because, as I say, these are the times when Europe is putting itself in the, in the, in the global data economy, where we are. And if we cut uh, the things that we need with our main trusted trading partners, I think we will forget about trying to compete with, uh, with, with some of the big economic powers in a matter of 10 days. So by all means. Thanks very much uh, for that perspective as well. Um, Ralph, before we get to uh, questions from the audience, uh, uh, I want to ask you to leave us with your uh, kind of top three uh, most important components uh, of this uh, regime. We've heard from uh, Commissioner Reinders that this is this is brand new. This is the establishment of uh, an entirely new uh, system of justice in the United States uh, for EU citizens. Um, what are the three most important things, from, from your perspective, because you helped draft this um, decision, uh, what are the three most important things for us all to remember uh, as we endeavor collectively uh, to help move this forward? So I think I have different ways to be lame here. I mean, what, one thing would be to say all of the elements okay are important um, because they, they are, all the findings are, are necessary for, for in the end having uh, the adequacy finding, which, which is, as I said, this declaratory uh, finding uh, uh, which then allows the free flow of data. The other way of being lame is to, to more or less echo uh, what the Commissioner said and, 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 and also, of course, focus on what the judgment was all about because obviously those are the, the, the important elements that we had to focus on. So I'm not going to talk about the commercial side. It's, it's, it, and, and, and that's actually a bit strange eh? because we should not forget that this is, first of all, a transfer uh, arrangement uh, uh, that seeks to ensure safeguards by the companies that, that they receive it. But Nevertheless, the, the, the discussion has focused and has shifted and is, is now concentrated on this, this second aspect. Um, so uh, government access for national security, uh, something which, which um, is a very delicate uh, uh, area and, and, and yet something that we uh, have to look into. Uh, and and I, 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 by the way, share the view that it's, it's something that's uh, not really suited for companies to, to, to do. Um, uh, so so I, I also think companies need help in this, and inadequacy finding is, of course, uh, one of these instruments. <coughs> so uh, if I then look basically at what the judgment was about, uh, I mean, that reflects then what are the, the most important elements, I think, in the decision. Um, so that's on the one hand 
the limitations and safeguards around um, government access in the area of national security, uh, and in particular, I would say, the um, enshrining the principles of necessity and proportionality uh, in the executive order. Um, and, and not just by name, because that's one criticism that we have already heard. Um, what does it mean? Okay, fine, the, the U.S. has now uh, sort of accepted to use these words to, to please the Europeans, and, 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 but that doesn't mean much. I think that's completely wrong. Um, the executive order does much more than that. It just uh, doesn't have like one line where it says uh, governing access in this area has to, to uh, comply with principles of, of necessity and proportionality. No, it explains what these principles mean in general terms and uh, through specific requirements for different types of access, for instance, uh, uh, targeted access, uh, what is called bulk collection, and which is very often misrepresented as as mass surveillance, which is a different thing. Um, so it, it explains what that means and, and what are the specific safeguards that, that sort of operationalize um, uh, uh, these, these principles. Um, so, so I think that's, that's a very uh, Im important aspect uh, and those are binding uh, um, obligations on uh, intelligence uh, agencies. Uh, they are enforceable as, as we've heard and, and that brings me then to the second element. Um, uh, and, and, and they come on top of other safeguards which already existed. We should also not forget that. Uh, uh, we had already in the privacy decision, of course, pointed to many other safeguards uh, and guarantees that exist in U.S. law. Um, this executive order comes on top of that. Um, so that's the first aspect, I would say. The second aspect, obviously, then uh, redress, um, which, is, which is, of course, uh, uh, very important. Um, and again, uh, we had to, the commissioner explained that, we, we, we had to find a solution which conforms, I mean, ensures that we uh, uh, comply with the requirements uh, of the Court of Justice so that, that uh, we can adopt a decision which stands the test uh, of time and the scrutiny of the court if, if ever this uh, uh, is challenged again. But at the same time, we had to find a solution that fits within the U.S. legal system. Um, uh, and I think... That's the re second remarkable part, that we have found a solution. Um, uh, yes, it's a, an administrative tribunal. It's a, a tribunal which is sort of uh, located within the executive, but it's uh, an independent uh, tribunal with all kinds of guarantees for the independence of the judges that, that will take the decisions, that has investigatory powers, uh, full investigatory powers to, to access all information necessary to, to review a complaint and, and adjudicate on it and enforcement powers to, to take decisions which are binding and, and can go from terminating uh, a collection to deleting the data that was unlawfully, uh, uh, deleting the data that was unlawfully collected. Um, uh, so, and, and there is a, there's a special representative for the individual uh, that takes care of the interest of the individual uh, in a setting where uh, the individual might not be able to be present because uh, it's about national security matters uh, and, and therefore there's a confidentiality need. So, so that's the second uh, aspect, uh, obviously, um, and importantly, uh, and, and that's sort of links back to what I said at the beginning, um, it had to fit in the U.S. system. Um, uh, the U.S. system, by the way, not so different than from our system, uh, has admissibility requirements when you want to go to court, uh, to the judiciary, uh, which means you have to show that you are individually concerned, um, which is very dif difficult in a, in a situation where you cannot show, because you should not know, perhaps, that you have been subject to surveillance. Uh, here we have created uh, a tribunal where you don't have these requirements uh, to show that you, are, um, that you have been subject to surveillance. You, you can simply go there. So that's something uh, which is a second very important element. Um, and then the third one, 
which is linked to that, uh, to, to both of the, 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 the two former elements, which is the, um, the oversight that, that's exercised, not just uh, uh, by, I mean, our uh, evaluation or, or, or review process that we will have and where we will meet with the U.S. Uh, colleagues in, in, in regular intervals, but, but in the U.S. system, and, and the commissioner mentioned the Privacy and Civil Liberties, Civil Liberties Oversight Board, an independent body that will play a, a crucial role in this whole system uh, of um, assessing, for instance, the implementing rules uh, that, that will have to be put in place uh, and assessing the functioning of this uh, uh, data protection review court and how it functions and that it functions well. And it will be able to have much more information uh, on, on, on uh, how it actually functions than, than uh, could be given to a third country or, or us as a regional, I mean, a foreign uh, uh, international organization. So, so that's uh, a very important complementary part uh, to, to, to have this role of the P-Club, as it's called, um, and, and which has a very high reputation, I think, uh, and has in the past uh, published very important reports that have led to major cha changes also in U.S. law. Uh, U.S. intelligence law, so so it, it has a very important role to play, and, and uh, we're very happy that it's sort of built into that system. Terrific overview, and you've actually anticipated and answered uh, many of the questions that came in from the audience, Rolf, so uh, well done to you for, uh, for that. Uh, the questions from, uh, from William and Timothy and David all focused on uh, your um, optimism about whether or not this will withstand uh, scrutiny and uh, why this is moving forward in parallel with U.S. implementation uh, of uh, their own requirements from the executive order. You've, uh, you've discussed that. Um, and uh, whether the executive order is concrete enough uh, to answer the, the European Court of Justice question about the need uh, for uh, definitions around U.S. security and definition around, around when it's okay to use uh, European uh, data and information. So you've, I, I think, addressed all of those. Uh, and it sounds like, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're optimistic that this has addressed the concerns raised by the European Court of Justice and, and will withstand uh, further judicial scrutiny. Otherwise, uh, uh, come out with this draft decision. Uh, people would say, "But you did so last time, and, and it was annulled." But okay, we, we're doing this following uh, a judgment which gave very clear directions, and that's very different, by the way, from the first time that we had the annulment. I mean, there we had a more general judgment um, which assessed the decision, which didn't have any assessment of, of of this government access part because it didn't have to, because it was adopted in in 2000 when nobody thought about. Uh, that this was part of the assessment. So, so we are in a very different situation um, uh, in terms of, sort of the, the mandate from, from our highest court. And, 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 and so, we, of course, we had to be also much more careful. And, and, and yes, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we have lived up to that um, challenge. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that perspective. And uh, obviously, we'll hear the U.S. perspective in just a few moments from Ambassador Gittenstein. Um, uh, I would ask uh, all of us here uh, in the live audience to join me in thanking our panel for a truly robust, informative, uh, and engaging discussion. And uh, the sense of optimism uh, about uh, the uh, decision uh, that will uh, be made uh, sometime before summer uh, is palpable. Uh, but we want to uh, ask uh, all in our audience to share with us 
uh, as well their view on the importance of the data privacy framework. So we'll put up our second poll question, uh, and then as soon as we have our poll results in, I'll introduce uh, Ambassador Gittenstein uh, to all of you, and we look forward to his remarks as well. Um, the question uh, from the panel is, uh, what does the data privacy framework mean for EU-US uh, relations? And in this question, you have four options to vote on. Uh, one, closer alignment on digital regulation, which you've heard a lot about, uh, both as to uh, pending and future uh, regulatory uh, issues before uh, the uh, EU. Uh, two is more business opportunities for EU and U.S. economic operators. Uh, three, enhanced protection of democratic values, those shared values between the EU and the U.S., and four, boosting innovation in the EU and US. So those are your four options. A reminder that you can participate in the poll online uh, by going to the window on the right-hand side of your online uh, screen. Uh, if you're in the room uh, with us live, as so many are, um, uh, you can use the QR code and participate in Slido uh, and answer the questions there as well. Um, and uh, as we uh, prepare our poll uh, responses, which are coming in in real time, thanks to the magic of technology. Uh, you can see that uh, most of our poll uh, answers have been as to uh, selection two, more business opportunities for EU and US uh, economic operators. Uh, $7.1 trillion in uh, global trade happening between the EU and the US implicated by this. Uh, 16 million jobs created in both the EU and the US as a result of robust digital uh, data flows. Um, so terrific there. Um, and um, uh, we uh, appreciate everyone's uh, participation in that poll. Um, it is now uh, my great pleasure uh, to move forward in our uh, conversation uh, by introducing to you uh, our final speaker for the day, His Excellency, uh, Mark Gittenstein, who is Ambassador of the United States of America to the European Union. Uh, Ambassador, I would get up and greet you in person, but I am t literally tethered to my chair by wires. Um, so if I were to stand up, I would collapse the stage. Um, so I will give you a, uh, a greeting from afar uh, with our thanks on behalf of ITI uh, for your being here today uh, and for your service uh, here uh, in Brussels. Uh, Ambassador Mark Gittenstein uh, spent the beginning of his career uh, actually working uh, in a, a different branch of government, the United States Senate, uh, on the Judiciary and Intelligence Committees, uh, working for a then um, well-known, but perhaps not as well-known as he is today, senator from the United States uh, state of Delaware by the name of Joe Biden. Uh, he worked for uh, then-Senator Biden for 13 years. Uh, he then uh, co-chaired uh, Senator Biden's transition uh, to the vice presidency in the Obama-Biden administration uh, in 2008, uh, and also helped uh, set up his transition to the presidency of the United States in 2020. Um, he's also spent most of the past decade uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, acting as ambassador or as counsel to NGOs, commercial clients focused on preserving and fortifying uh, democracy. Ambassador Gittenstein, it is a uh, true uh, pleasure to have you uh, with us here today uh, to share your perspective and the United States government's perspective on the importance of the transatlantic relationship uh, between the U.S. and the EU. Uh, and I will welcome you to the podium and uh, invite you to uh, share your remarks with us. Thank you. I've been working on this issue long and hard pretty much the whole year that I've been here. I learned a lot today from the panel. Uh, 
which I don't know if that's good news or bad news. But, uh, <laughs> um, it's, it's great to be here, and it's a pleasure to celebrate the progress that we have made in creating the EU-US data privacy framework. Um, you know, uh, one thing Jason didn't mention in my biography is actually the way I met Joe Biden was I had been working, for those of you who know the intelligence community and the, the history uh, of its regulation in the United States on something called the Church Committee, which was created in 1974, I believe. Uh, I actually was on the staff of that committee, and I got to know Biden after I left that committee and I was thinking of going into private practice and he enticed me into coming back to work for him as a staff member of the Permanent Intelligence on Committee, which was working then on the first effort to actually regulate the intelligence community and its surveillance of American citizens. Uh, and that was called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, uh, which many of you have heard about. But uh, Sen then Senator Biden and I were instrumental in drafting that bill uh, and dealt with many of these same issues. So when it came time to present uh, the final uh, description of the arrangement that he and President von der Leyen and he would announce that day when we were prepping the president, I discussed with the president that this is, in a sense, a bookend 40 years later to the work we started uh, in 1976. Uh, in which we were regulating electronic surveillance and signals intelligence, many of the same issues that the Schrems II decision forced the United States to confront, and uh, that we should both be proud of it, and he was. I think he recognized the point that Jason uh, and Ralph and others have been making, which is this is a huge change in U.S. law. Uh, and I, I hope people in Europe, I particularly hope the data see data privacy boards, and in particular the court, will recognize how uh, significant this change is in the way uh, we regulate our own intelligence community on data involving not just American citizens, but European citizens. I might say that in 1976, when Senator Biden and I were working on this, we tried to get coverage of uh, non-U.S. Non citizens in the legislation. We failed, but now in effect, we've accomplished that uh, because of what the EU has done. And I give the EU credit uh, and the court credit for forcing us uh, uh, to face uh, the importance of this issue. Um, I think it's important to understand, I think we've gone over a lot of it today, but just so you hear it coming from my mouth, that this puts a in the first element of the framework is we are putting significant restraints on our intelligence agencies themselves. And we've created an independent redress body which did not exist uh, before the executive order that was issued pursuant to our understanding uh, with uh, DG Just and, and uh, the Commission generally, uh, in that all investigative complaints that violate the standards set out in the executive order are now subject to an administrative agency, but one that um, is subject to, in effect, the Administrative Procedures Act, which those of you who uh, know a little bit about American law, is a gen generic law that 
requires that any agency that commits to do uh, undertake certain administrative responsibilities is subject uh, to the act and to our Constitution independent of this arrangement. And I think it's probably the first time, other than the Foreign Surveillance uh, Act, where we've taken signals intelligence, which is a very sensitive area of intelligence, and made it subject to restraint as it relates to foreign citizens. We worked diligently on this issue long before I got here. I, I didn't get here till January of last year. Uh, the Biden administration and the European Commission were hard at work on this issue before I got here. Uh, and we were attempting to strike the appropriate balance between civil liberties on the one hand, national security on the other, and the flow of data to support uh, a $7 trillion uh, trade arrangement between the United States and Europe at the same time. Um, I think we struck the right balance. Uh, I think, you know, obviously it's not my decision to make as to whether the Schrems has been complied with. I'm very happy with what I've seen in the draft uh, adequacy finding, but in the end, as we all know, this will be up to the European Court. Uh, I think what's the important lesson I took from this is that as a U.S. ambassador, and I'm facing this now in a number of other legal and trade-related issues, which you all know, probably heard a lot about, is that when we engage in discussions on these two huge democratic systems, the European Commission and the Union on the one hand, the United States on the other, they are both federated democratic systems that attempt to support the same values, transparency, rule of law, um, uh, democratic values, that because of our traditions, we deal with them slightly differently. And it, to the extent when we get into negotiations or discussions about differences, as we were doing with TREMS, as we are now doing in, in with a number of trade disputes, it's important to understand that the values we're trying to protect are actually more similar than they are different. And that to the extent you can move the debate to those values and protecting those values and recognizing that we have cultural and legal and historic differences that go back hundreds of years, that if we don't focus on the differences, but we focus on what we hold in common, we can reach an agreement, which is what we did in this case, at least for now. Um, and um, I'm very optimistic about where this will end up, uh, but I, uh, I think it's important to recognize that, uh, as Rolf points out, we're not done yet. And as the commissioner pointed out, we're not done yet. Uh, I think we've laid a very firm foundation uh, to get the right result, uh, and I'm anxious to see what happens uh, this summer and what will happen after that, which will be clearly be a court decision. Um, I, I am certain that if we use this approach uh, to resolving our differences in this particular area, which is technology, privacy, national security, we can reach the same consensus in all the other areas we're working on because I can tell you, having spoken to the President about this, there is no issue that concerns him more than reaching a unity of approach on both sides of the Atlantic on all the problems we face, not simply Ukraine uh, and data, uh, but climate change uh, and all the human rights issues that we, uh, we face and economic we face issues we face all over the world. So 
Uh, I would thank all of those on the panel and especially those who worked in the commission on this and the technology community. I'd particularly point out Microsoft has been extremely helpful to us in understanding the implications uh, of these decisions. And um, uh, so I look forward to working with all of you in the future and be happy to answer questions if thank you, you would like. Thank you so much, Ambassador, for your remarks. And I, I do have, uh, thank you. I do have one question to uh, ask you before you, we let you get back to the important work of, uh, of emphasizing uh, the shared values of the US and the EU, which you uh, stated so eloquently. And, and this, I think, is a great example uh, of the uh, unwavering uh, relationship between the US and the EU. Um, you uh, offered a, uh, a hearteningly optimistic view that this time around, um, the, uh, the work uh, to put a framework, a uh, data privacy framework uh, in place uh, will survive scrutiny. Uh, and I say this time around because, of course, the last two times it hasn't. Um, uh, you emphasized and you made reference to uh, Commissioner uh, Reinders' comment that this is a very different uh, regime that has been put in place and the President's executive order establishing uh, really a new, a brand new administrative process, uh, a new administrative uh, review process, and a new uh, quasi-judicial uh, system within the intelligence community is, uh, is brand new. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, why it is you're optimistic that this time around uh, the work has been done uh, to satisfy the concerns that the European Court of Justice has twice before uh, expressed uh, and um, uh, why we should share your optimism uh, that this time around the result will be different. I'm going to begin answering this question with a story, okay? Uh, people accuse me of using stories too much, but it's the easiest way for me to explain, and hopefully you'll understand where I'm coming from on this. I got here in March. Within a week, I was in the middle of this dispute. I got on all of these calls with American lawyers at the intelligence community. Fortunately, I had one phenomenal lawyer, uh, Amy, who's sitting in the audience with me, helping guide me through this. But the lawyers I kept hearing, especially from the intelligence agencies, the Justice Department, started huge debates over what the Schrems decision meant and didn't mean. I said, after listening to two days of this, I said, stop, okay? I don't want to hear another American lawyer explain to me European law, and I don't want to hear a bunch of European lawyers explain to me how our Constitution works. Let's stick to our knitting, as we say. You tell me what we can do under our system, and I'm going to listen to the Rolfs of the world and the, Clint and the Didier Rangers of the world about what European law means. And let's see if we can reach common ground. So. I hesitate to say, I'm not, when I say I'm optimistic, I'm not saying me as an American lawyer, and I have a little experience as an American lawyer, I'm giving my opinion about what the court, the European Court of Justice will do. I actually don't know the answer to that question. But I do trust the Rolfs of the world and the Didier's, uh, Rangers of the world telling me what they think the court can do. And if we, and, you know, the, the key to success here in, in transatlantic relationship is listening and listening to both sides. And it's not being arrogant on our side about what we think you should be doing and vice versa. To the extent we do that, the consensus seems to be from the European lawyers that this will work. And I take their word for it. And I do know that we pushed the envelope as far as we could under the American system 
to reach the goals of the court. Now, if the court listens to us and listens to the adequacy findings and listens to the boards when they look at this and recognize this is as far as we can go, there actually isn't an alternative. For them, for the court to say, okay, we want you to do more, well, that means you, you, you just are not interested in, in seeing this work because we can't, there's really literally very little more we can do. Uh, so, I mean, I could get into the details. I think it would be better. I think Amy would be more comfortable if I didn't. <laughs> so uh, that's why I'm optimistic, because I think we both listened to each other. We went as, each of us went as far as we could go, which is, you know, the hallmark of a good negotiation. So, you know, I am an optimist by nature, but I do think it's going to work. We share your optimism, and we appreciate your perspective. Uh, please join me in thanking Ambassador Mark Gittenstein for his remarks. And thank you to everyone uh, on the panel and all of our speakers. Thanks to Commissioner Reinders. And thanks to all of you in our audience here in the room in Brussels uh, and around the world online for participating today. You know, the digital landscape is constantly evolving, as we've heard today. It brings forward new and innovative technologies. And we're pleased to have the opportunity to discuss how the way in which we live our lives and work and communicate together can be improved by innovation. Um, but of course, the new challenges that this brings in the policy arena are also worth discussing. And we are going to work together, uh, industry, public, and private partnership, to create the kind of balanced, fit-for-purpose legislation uh, and regulatory decisions that make all lives better through technology. It's uh, an increasingly compact complex geopolitical context that we operate in, uh, but discussions like this today really help us move forward with the right digital policies. Uh, ITI, as the trade association of the technology industry, we look very much forward to seeing what the future holds uh, and how we can continue to rely on the close transatlantic relationship to advance uh, technology on behalf of citizens and businesses in the US uh, and the EU. And we will work collaboratively together to move the digital uh, privacy framework uh, forward. So this marks the event uh, end for us today with our thanks to all our speakers and all our participants. You can continue the conversation online using the hashtag dataflows. On behalf of all of us at ITI, thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you again soon. For those online and for those in the room, please join us for a reception immediately following our discussion here uh, in Brussels. Uh, have a good day and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. <laughs>